Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll attend the dedication of a long-overdue monument in Wilkes-Barre. We'll hear about how a professional journalism organization is addressing ethics within its ranks. And we'll hear from a recently retired author who has a new book about properly planning your golden years. Their days were spent toiling underground in dangerous conditions. Some went to work in ages that were in the single digits. Others spent their twilight years trying to overcome the effects of an occupation that few today would likely choose. It is only fitting, then, that the descendants of area coal miners braved a raw April day to attend a dedication ceremony honoring the men of the mines. The Anthracite Heritage Foundation and King's College of Wilkes-Barre have joined forces to put together the Miners Memorial Wall of Honor on Public Square. A dedication and blessing service was held earlier this month, and hundreds braved the elements to see the names of their loved ones unveiled at the ceremony. Robert Carruthers of West Pittston and his extended family turned out for the event to honor his father. Talk to me about your dad. What was his name and, and where did he work? Which mine? Well, my, my dad was uh, Robert James Carruthers, and uh, he worked for the Hubert Breakery. Way back after the service, he got out of the paratroopers, and he got a job at the coal miners. And it was, if I could say the word hell, okay, it was hell. What do you remember him telling you that made it seem like his work was so hard? Well, he told me a story about the rats in the coal mines where they actually fed them to keep them around so they would know if the gas was in there or not. And uh, that, that's one story he told me. But I know there's another story about the canary, and I never heard that story from him. It was always about the rats. What do you remember most about, you know, when he would go to work in the morning and so on? Do you, do you remember, like, what he wore or what he told you besides the part about the rats? What, what did he say about the work besides it was hell? Well, at, at one time he told me uh, he, he would fill the box carts up with coal, and they would actually get out of work early. So that was the better part of it all. But other times he'd come home and I couldn't even see his face. He was so black. What did he say to you to uh, maybe discourage you from following his path? Although maybe was, was the mining era kind of ending by the time you were a young person? No, he actually told me to get, try to get an education so you don't end up where I end up. Did he suffer in, in his life from the effects of being in the mine? Uh, yes, he did. I'm a little sentimental about this, but... He actually did. He, he was on oxygen, and he had black lung, and he did suffer. 
What is it like for you to be here today and know that his name is, is on that wall? Well, I seen his name on the wall and I took a picture of it. And uh, it was touching, very touching. And you brought your entire family, right? Oh yeah, my sister here, my nephew, my niece, and my granddaughter, and my daughter. We're all here. Bernadette Druby of Wilkes-Barre recalled the sacrifice of her grandfather while waiting for the ceremony to commence. My grandfather, Ignaz Cherneski, was a miner. He was killed in an explosion in the Franklin Colliery in 1947. He was only 57 years old. I never got to know him, unfortunately. I was only a baby. He uh, died in an explosion, along with, I believe it was seven or eight other men at the time. And my grandmother was left a widow, and um, it was a, a very hard time for many women like her who were left on their own with a home to take care of and she ended up having to rent out rooms in her home to other people in the family and even had to take in boarders to keep her home. What's it like knowing that his his name is on this wall and, and what do you think that would mean to someone like your grandmother to, to know that? Um, I think it's a wonderful tribute to the men who gave their lives for King Cole and uh, it's a, just a nice way to remember them. They're not forgotten. King's College in Wilkesbury was founded with the purpose of educating the children of minors. Father Thomas Looney recited a prayer at the dedication, reflective of the challenges faced by the men who toiled long hours underground to provide for their families. A coal miner's prayer. Each day I descend into the hole to earn my living digging coal. I pray to my Father in heaven above that I may return to those I love. If somehow death I should meet, I want to wake at God's feet. I want my loved ones to be sure that in God's arms I am secure. Dr. Robert Walensky, a Swoyersville native and professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, gave historical perspective at the event. In his remarks, Walensky paid tribute to the late Jim Burke, a member of the first graduating class of King's College, whose generosity and devotion to anthracite history made the Miners Memorial a reality. The weather may not be the best, but our, our intentions are, and our purposes are. And I'm sure that will keep our hearts warm and dry, because this is not just a ordinary, in my mind, blessing and inauguration. This is downtown Wilkes-Barre's first attempt to acknowledge the mine workers. There are monuments up and down the valley. Pittston, Plymouth, Nanticoke, up in the Lackawanna Valley, Wilkes-Barre finally has done it. And it's so appropriate that King's College is the site of this. As John mentioned, this college was established to educate the sons and other relatives of coal miners in 1946. I want to make two points in my remarks here this afternoon. I know professors love to profess, but I'll be fairly brief. Jim Burke used to say that we need to have an attitude of gratitude for what our forebearers did to create and maintain the anthracite industry and the society and culture that grew up around it, coal cracker culture, as Harold Orand, the professor from Penn State Hazleton, called his book on this subject, Coal Cracker Culture. It's a great book published about 10 years ago. Now, this idea, it's a simple idea, an attitude of gratitude, doesn't sound too profound, but it, what, it's what motivated Jim, it's what motivated other members of the Anthracite Heritage Foundation, but Jim was the leader of this board, 
and we, uh, we pushed forward with this idea of an attitude of gratitude. It's not just a simple idea. I believe it's a deeply moral idea. It's got deep moral meanings. We're not just gratitude in a simple thank you way. Now, this is big. These are people who came a long, long way into the unknown, who lived very simple lives, typically in Europe, although we did have African-American miners up here as well, something we're just beginning to discover and talk about. We had a, we had a talk last January at Wilkes about African-American miners. They were here, coming out of the South. But most of them came from Europe, from 26 different lands, or 26 or so different languages spoken around here. It was a tremendous saga. It's one of the biggest and greatest sagas in American history because anthracite was the fuel that fired the Industrial Revolution. It was east of the Alleghenies. In the 1830s, we couldn't wait for the bituminous coal to come in from points west, including western Pennsylvania, but Ohio and so forth. Bituminous, or soft coal, was found in 32 different states. Lots of bituminous. Anthracite is only found here in these 10 counties. These 10 counties have 95% of the hard coal, it's called hard coal as opposed to soft coal, hard coal in this hemisphere. This is the mother load. And it was used to fire the Industrial Revolution of the 1830s and 40s. England already, they were already in the Industrial Revolution, and so was Germany and so was France. We were latecomers to it, and it was hard coal that fired it because it was, we were so close to the eastern seaboard. The coal could get there rather easily, easily, I mean relatively easily, despite the mountains. And uh, hundreds of thousands came here. Your ancestors, my ancestors, most likely. I know Jim always talked about this. And uh, as bad as it was here sometime, strikes and violence and accidents and disasters, it was still typically better here than it was there. So this attitude of gratitude is all about that history, that huge movement, one of the biggest movements, population movements in, in recent centuries between 1830 and 40, when the Irish started coming in, and Welsh, of course, and Germans. The English were here quite early. And then after the Civil War, in the 1870s especially, come the Eastern and Southern Europeans. I guarantee you, if you're of Polish descent or Ukrainian descent, your relatives came between 1880 and 1920s, because we shut the door in the 20s. We passed three laws in the 20s to stop the Eastern and Southern Europeans coming in, because Congress and my fellow sociologists who testified warned us that these Eastern and Southern Europeans were diluting the genetic and moral stock of the nation. These were inferior peoples in 1920. So we passed three laws, and we way cut back on the immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. We increased it from Northern Europe. We also shut out the Chinese. We also did a lot of mining. So again, this is a big legacy, and we need to appreciate that legacy, including the struggles because here we are, the beneficiaries of that legacy. Our lives are a whole lot better than theirs, and they'd be very happy that our lives are a lot, because this is what they wanted. This, they, want our, they wanted our lives better than theirs. King's College certainly expressed an attitude of gratitude by having this wall here. So here we have an institutionalized attitude of gratitude. We have it in our hearts, but we also have it in the place behind me. And that's the second point I want to make. The second point is this idea of a legacy of place a legacy of place, the, the legacy of place. Places are very important because they symbolize who we are and where we come from and what's meaningful in life. One anthropologist wrote that human beings are meaning seekers. We seek to provide meaning to our lives. You can't live very long without meaning to your life. Unfortunately, today, a lot of folks find meaning in things that are not very healthy or very productive and are very short-term, very consumerist-oriented and worse. This place 
provides a legacy of meaning for a long, long time. Forever, we hope, as long as we're around, because names are going to keep on going up. Uh, the Huber Breaker was a, was a place, as I said, a symbol of so many things. Historical preservation is all about this. Uh, the, the Battle of Wyoming Monument, there's a place that is very important to us. So it's, it's a legacy. The Avondale Disaster Memorial in Plymouth Township. The Knox Disaster Sites, you can see them walk along the river by the 8th Street Bridge, and it's a beautiful walk. Rails to trails conversion. You can see the site. There's a marker on where the, where the river broke in, and the site further up where the men came out at the Eagle Air Shaft. At least a number of them came out. There are 12 men still underground, still under the river from the Knox disaster. It's their, it's their burial place. There are 55 in, in Pittston uh, at the uh, Twin Shaft. They're still buried there. Those places are, are sacred places. Places are very important. This place in back of me, the Miners Memorial Park and the Wall of Honor inside, provide meaning, tell us who we are, remind us that we are not merely individuals pursuing our own interests, rather we're part of a community, we're part of history, part of a tradition, we're part of a legacy. Northeastern PA, as I say, as I say, has one heck of a saga to tell. As my one friend used to say, when we were playing cards or playing sports, he'd say, well, they might tie us, but they'd never beat us. He was a real optimist. We were often beaten anyway. I will say that our history is as good as anybody's history. They might tie us, but they won't beat us. When you look into it, when you scratch below the surface of this history, it is one whale of a history. And it is, it is our history. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're proud of these men in back of us who are on the wall, and I'm going to be proud of the, of the ones that are coming soon. I'm proud to be a coal cracker, and I'm sure that you are, and I'm sure these guys on the wall are. Uh, this is our legacy. This is who we are. This wall commemorates that. That's why I say it's a deeply moral, in that sense, occasion. After the service, we spoke to Tom Burke, the son of benefactor Jim Burke, about his father's unwavering support for the area's mining history. We're, we're sad that he's not here to see it. Um, uh, he, he passed uh, about two years ago, but he was here when the, when the, uh, the ribbon-cutting uh, ceremony to open the park occurred. And this was this, the, the, this, the phase two. And um, uh, he would have been so delighted, uh, I, th I think, to be here just to feel the vibe that was going on. I mean, um, you know, he, uh, he always said that um, you know, it's in the DNA of the folks from the valley, uh, the, the mining history. And, and it's history that's, that's being lost. And that's what this park was all about. It was to... Uh, not only um, commemorate the lives of the miners, but to educate folks about the sacrifices that they, they made to make this country really what it, what it is. And so the tutorials around the park, that was the uh, education piece, and the commemoration piece is the Wall of Honor. And um, we have 875 names on there now. We hope to get you know, many thousands more and uh, uh, it couldn't be in a better, better place, uh, Public Square in Wilkesboro, uh, where uh, so many people will be able to enjoy this. Uh, you know, my father um, was, was a very, um, I think, successful man in business and, and in various things, but he never forgot where he came from. And uh, uh, he was a native of, of Wilkesboro, and, and he always felt that this was his home. 
and uh, he had uh, uncles who worked in the mines, relatives who worked in the mines, and um, he, he always believed and taught his six children, never forget where, where you came from and, and how you got there. And, and I remember his speech here, um, uh, we stand on the shoulders of those that, that came before us, and, and he's right. And, and uh, that's what this was all about. It was, it was to, to honor those that uh, sacrificed and, and deserve um, our, our gratitude and respect. We're delighted to be here. It's a great day. Courtdale Mayor Dorothy Dusler came to the Wall of Honor dedication to see her father's name unveiled. My dad started in the mines as a breaker boy at eight years old. And from there he became a miner and did get his... Uh, license to set up charge, set out charges, but he always knew when there was going to be a cave-in and he would get his men out. There was just an instinct he had. And until he died, he said, if the mine's open tomorrow, I'm going back. You're kidding. No. I don't think a lot of people said that. <laughs> he did. He did. Did he, you talk about being a breaker boy a lot? Not too much. Yeah. I mean, he came from a big family and he was the oldest, so he had a, you know, go to work, I guess, and that's why he was a breaker boy. What, what did you feel when you saw his name on this wall? Wonderful. <laughs> I was the boy he never had, so I was with him all the time, and we had four girls in the family, and he just taught me so much, like with repairs and doing things. I miss him so much. Karen Yamaris of Dallas was also there to see the name of her father, Frank P. Yamaris. Tell me a little bit about your dad. He was our superman. He worked in the mines. Um, we were actually just trying to figure out this afternoon how long he worked in the mines. We think it was probably like 30 years. So he, he was a hard worker. He started, I think he quit school when he was in eighth grade because he had to go to work in the mines to support his family. And he worked there, like I said, I think for 30 years. What did he tell you that you remember the most about that kind of experience? You know, he didn't really talk to me. I'm the youngest of all of the kids, so he didn't really talk to me a lot about it. So my older siblings kind of know more. They lived it with him. What kind of reaction did you have seeing his name here today? I loved it because I am the one who did this for my family. I saw it. I think I saw an advertisement and... I called right away and got this all organized, so it's been a long time in coming. I bet you I did this like a year and a half ago, so it's so cool to see it finally happen. For more information about the Miner's Memorial Wall of Honor on Public Square, visit www.ahfdn.org or call 570-851-0537. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The Society of Professional Journalists just wrapped up the notation of Ethics Week, and it seems as though this concept is needed now more than ever in the trade. A recent Gallup poll shows trust in journalists is at the lowest point in the organization's history. Gallup began asking about the media in 1972, and trust among the public stood at 72% in 1976. It's now at just 32%, with 
We spoke this week to NEPA native Andrew Seaman, a senior medical writer for Reuters and the Ethics Committee chairperson for the Society of Professional Journalists. Ethics Week has been around for quite a while. We focus on ethics all year round, of course. Um, You know, it's pretty much like one of my full-time jobs now. I answer questions from journalists, from the public, about, you know, what journalists are doing, why journalists do that. And a lot of times I sort of spend time as sort of uh, uh, the bridge between journalists and the public. Ethics Week came came about several years ago. It was sort of patchy at first, but then over the past few years, it's always been the last week of April. And basically, it's a time for the Society of Professional Journalists, which is the nation's largest professional journalism organization, to really focus on advocating and educating people about ethical and responsible journalism. What I do is I sort of try and get some events together with the help of our headquarters in Indianapolis and with our membership and leadership to just draw attention to our code of ethics, which, you know, it's been around in some form since the 1920s. And then also just to talk about what's going on in the world of journalism. And, you know, now it's a very interesting time in journalism. So you have, you know, President Trump, who is not a fan of the media or the press, it seems, or at least most of them. (laughs) And uh, you also have sort of waning trust in the press. So I think, you know, this year was a very important year to sort of try and ramp it up. So, you know, this year we're having uh, billboards in Times Square. So if you're in New York City and you uh, pop into the cross cross streets of the world, you'll see uh, SPJ's ethics code displayed on the big screen. And then uh, we have some other events going on, and then we're going to cap the uh, the week with some letters to Congress. So every member of Congress will be getting a code of ethics bookmark with a letter from us. Now, one of the, the hot topics, Andrew, is, as you're very well aware, is this blanket of fake news. I mean, that that is thrown out all the time now, and it's kind of distressing for people, I believe who are trying to act ethically and do their jobs right and and so on and so forth to be called out as fakes or phonies. But the definition of who is a journalist, I think, is is clearly in transition. I think so. You know, one of the things that I always sort of put forward is that back at the development of the country, the word journalist was not a good term. It was people who made up news. So, you know, fake news was a very big problem. And over time, what happened is with the reformist errors in the 1920s and the 1900s, you saw standards start um, taking shape. So you started seeing SPJ put out a code and a bunch of other journalism organizations put out a code. And that's when you saw that shift to sort of that very focus on ethics and accuracy and truth in the mid-1900s through the digital era. What's interesting about the Internet is that anyone can be a journalist. And one of the things that people always push me on is, well, is this person a journalist or not? And one of the really interesting things about the United States is that the First Amendment doesn't say this is what the press is. It doesn't define the press. It just says that everyone has the ability and the freedom of the press. It's not for me to say who's a journalist, but what I can say is that when we all get together, these are the standards and the best practices that we believe make good journalism. So I could say if someone's a good journalist or a bad journalist or maybe an inaccurate journalist, but I can't really say who is or is not a journalist since since the Founding Fathers sort of lets everyone be a journalist. Yeah, and certainly you don't have the latitude 
to go out and disparage anybody and say, listen, uh, Ted, you're not a journalist. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is a tough thing because I think there is this grouping or lumping together of all kinds of people under the banner of the term journalist. And that's going to be somewhat frustrating for you. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think cable news is the biggest sort of burden that I have to bear, because when you look at the different cable news channels, you have Fox News and you have Sean Hannity, who's definitely a pundit. But then you have Shepard Smith, who does really great journalism, and he's a very, he's a great anchor. The same thing with MSNBC, you know, you have Chris Matthews, who is a pundit, but then you have, like, Thomas Roberts, who's on during the day, who's also a great anchor. It's difficult, because when they lump them all together, I think that sort of confuses people. And I think one of the problems when it comes to trust in media is that the media environment got very complex very quickly. So if you think of, like, the 1980s, like, I, when I was a child, like, I'm, hopefully I'm not old, but um, I still remember when Scranton had an afternoon paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was before the internet. So you had a morning paper, you had the Today Show, you had the afternoon broadcast and the afternoon paper, and then the evening broadcast, but you didn't have the internet. And then when the internet came along, you had news all the time. And I can't say that it's any more inaccurate than it used to be, just because I think the numbers are just a lot bigger, so it's more noticeable, and things are a lot more transparent. I think it's definitely more confusing for people that, you know, there's so many options and it's it's sort of like, well, should I believe the New York Times and FoxNews.com when their website looks exactly like this other website that's saying something completely different? So I think it's definitely confusing. Indeed it is. Also, in the era that we're in right now with President Trump, the, the media often gets ridiculed pretty severely. And in fact, he's been kind of somebody who's been instrumental in making people have terrible feelings about the media. And I think some of the things that he does talk about have a little bit of justification. Uh, but at the same time, he is also somebody who makes the job a little bit difficult. What, what's happened to the, the craft or the profession since he was sworn in that you believe needs to kind of be rectified because people are yelling baselessly about, uh, about things? I've been very happy with journalists so far. Um, you know, when, when we talk about sort of the White House press corps, um, I've been pretty happy with their their actions, um, because, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people say under Obama, the press was too friendly or things like that. And I think that's on some level true. I think the press for a very long time, even before Obama, they were a little bit too comfortable. Um, it was very routine for them. So when there's a routine, you sort of rest on your laurels. But um, I think with Trump, because his administration came in and basically said, Literally, you're the opposition party. I don't think the press is acting like the opposition party, but I think what they are acting as is people who need to find stuff out. So I hope that continues even after the Trump administration, whether it's in three years or eight years or however long he's in office. But so I hope that keeps up. What I what I don't want to see continue is a lot of use of anonymous sources. Mm-hmm. I think just from talking to people within government, because all administrations, the Obama administration was very on message, I guess would be the term, you know, you you needed to be on their message, and they controlled the message. In the Trump administration, it sort of seemed like it's mostly like, don't speak out against our message, or you might find yourself out of a job. So it's obviously people don't want to be speaking out. So they asked for anonymity. 
And, you know, I'm sure people within the administration request anonymity, but it's the job of journalists to push back against that, because what we see, and, you know, we've seen it in President Trump's um, press conferences, is you can sort of just disregard stories with anonymous sources, because if you don't know who they are, what is the weight of their evidence? If it's an unknown person, do they, are they really informed? I think when you see anonymous sources in larger publications like the Washington Post and the New York Times, they are vetted, and they don't grant that lightly. But at the same time, I, I don't think it should be granted as often as it is. I think that that kind of sourcing seems to be a bit in an evolutionary period, though, because I believe in the past that some of the best stories ever put out had to come from people who were anonymous but known. In other words, I, I guess I want a clarification on this with you. Just because the paper says that a source is anonymous doesn't mean that the source is unknown to the reporter. And oh, yeah. you are really, uh, again, good reporters put their credibility on the line when they decide to use these type of sources. So I don't think that they should be diminished in any way, shape, or form if the information needs to get out from someone who cannot have their name put in the story. No, I, yeah, that, that is completely correct. So usually the protocol for anonymous sources at larger publications is before you use an anonymous source, you have to get permission from your editor, and in some cases, the top editor of the news organization. So the, the identity of the source needs to be known to all three. And you're correct that a lot of stories will not happen. You know, some of the most important stories will not happen without anonymous sources. So look at what happened with uh, General Mike Flint. That would not have come out if it were not for anonymous sources. And similarly with other large stories sort of across the time span. Um, my issue, though, is when, you know, you're getting an anonymous source to say that, you know, President Trump walks around in his bathrobe or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really vital to sort of the national conversation. Um, anonymous sources are crucial sort of to journalism. It's just that we need to use them more sparingly and more appropriately. In this day and age, as you and I both know, Andrew, people go to Facebook for news, and that has changed a lot mostly because some of the things that you see on Facebook are just blatantly false, and you have people spreading them, like, you know, somebody's dad that's a celebrity, and it's, you have to be careful with this kind of stuff. When the general public gets involved with that kind of um, spreading of stuff that's fake, it's really a problem for everyone, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, and it's it's a problem for democracy. You don't want to oversell these things, but at the same time, you need to sort of step back and realize that the role that journalism and just information dissemination plays is that, you know, we don't have a direct democracy. We have, you know, the system where we send people to Washington, D.C., we send people to Harrisburg or Albany, and we rely on journalists and we rely on other people to go there and say, okay, well, here's what they're doing. Here's what they're voting on. And when you get people who are purposely putting out misinformation, you know, it threatens that system because if they're putting out just blatant lies, and sometimes, you know, the lies are more appetizing to people than the truth. You know, if it's the government's plotting something against its own people versus the government's putting out a new bill for the Environmental Protection Administration, which one are people usually going to click on? 
it's definitely a problem because then when people go in the voting booth, they don't have quality information to make quality choices. And the whole purpose of journalism is to give people that the best information possible and not to tell them what to do with it, but just give them the information and say, go out and do what you think is best. And when you have that information floating around on Facebook, that sort of jeopardizes that. So it's really up to people to sort of be a little bit more critical of what they see on Facebook, you know, click through and mm-hmm. compare it to other websites and see if it's a legitimate news source. Or if it's something's completely outrageous, don't <laughs> click through it or you might get a virus in your computer. But if the sourcing, the name of the source looks weird, then maybe that's a thing. And finally, a Gallup poll shows that journalists have a long way to go to gain trust with the public. How does the SPJ take that issue up? And what are the things that you do day in and day out to increase public trust? One of the good things about SPJ is that we have chapters all across the country. Um, so we have journalists, and we have we have a chapter in northeastern Pennsylvania, the Keystone State Pro Chapter. So what we're encouraging chapters to do is reach out to the public. So I think SPJ for a long time had been an organization that focused on journalists and the development of journalists. And we'll, we'll still do that, but we definitely now have a role where we have to reach out to the community and say, here's what journalism is like, and here are the limitations, here are the benefits. And get the people across the country mobilized to sort of educate people about what we do. And I think that'll go a long way um, to building trust, because instead of having sort of those figures in the distance on CNN or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, um, or even in your local community, like the Times Tribune, the Citizens Voice, the Times Leader, you know, have more community engagement so that people know the journalists. They know that they're out there working for not a gigantic salary, and they have the same problems as everyone else, and bridging those gaps. But also to realize that mistakes will be made like in any profession. And one of the things that I like to remind people of is that with the Internet comes a lot of baggage for journalism, but at the same time, um, if we can harness it for good, um, we can actually get more accurate journalism. One of the things I like to point out is, you know, Walter Cronkite was the most, you know, most trusted man in America, supposedly. But in 1952, he bugged a committee room at the National or Republican National Convention, and he reshot interviews with Johnson to make himself look more sympathetic. Something like that probably would not go unnoticed these days. Yeah. So we have the tools to make journalism better, and hopefully SPJ will be there to bridge the gap and guide people. That's Andrew Seaman, a graduate of Wilkes University, senior medical writer for Reuters, and the Ethics Committee chairman for the Society of Professional Journalists. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Although retirement is an important life goal, 7 out of 10 adults are concerned they won't have enough money for their golden years. Others want financial guidance, yet may be hesitant to reach out for help. Sally Balch-Hermy knows better than others about strategies for retirement. First, she recently met that milestone. And second, she's the author of a new book, Get the Most Out of Retirement, checklist for happiness, health, purpose, and financial security. She spent more than 20 years as an attorney and told us about travel, housing, and financial preparedness. One of the things that made me feel comfortable that I could uh, sort of step into retirement a little bit earlier than I had planned 
was that all along I had been saving in my IRA and working to make sure that I had a comfortable cushion because one of the key things that is kind of frightening about retirement is that all along you've been saving uh, looking forward to social security and whatever income you might have the point is that you've got to move from saving to spending of that uh, nest egg that you've been building so a constant from as long as possible to be saving for retirement and then realizing you need to start spending your savings is there ever a moment when people can no longer get involved in some kind of saving because I received a message from somebody that said too many people where we live have or only will have social security. This person says they prepare taxes and they see many people do not contribute to their pensions or future and will have nothing when they do retire. So how do you advise people to at least try to do something? Well, every bit that you save helps because while you're still working because of the benefit of compounding interest. Does what you save continues to grow? It's hard very frequently to find that extra money to put away into savings, but cutting back if you at any way can to sock some money away will make your retirement much more comfortable. There are a lot of people who are living uh, only on their Social Security benefit, and no matter how much that Social Security benefit might be, it is never it's never been intended to fully make your retirement uh, comfortable. Another important thing to do as you are approaching retirement is to cut down and at least not build your debt and start working on paying it down as much as you can because the interest that you have to pay on debt works against you uh, because it is just more money that you have to pay to get rid of the principal on your debt. Yeah, so get uh, aggressive, I guess, with that debt payment, because that could be a huge burden in retirement if you're still carrying a a lot of it. And you're right, maybe scale down a tad when you're uh, looking toward the finish line, right? Yes, you want to have the least amount of debt going into retirement as you can physically manage, because those debt payments that you have to pay with restricted funds during retirement is more catastrophic than the debt that you're paying now. Okay. Uh, Your book talks a a lot and there are great places where people can write notes in it and and things like that. It's it's very, very well organized. I could see you're a little bit of a control freak, which I admire. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you, You tell people to get the most out of their retirement by using 15 key steps in order to achieve the goal. Do a lot of people, Sally, get to retirement in in kind of a way where they're driving through their life at 70 miles an hour and suddenly they're going zero and it's a huge, huge adjustment that they hadn't expected? 
I definitely think that retirement should not be a, a huge zero, and that's one of the key things that I try to uh, encourage people to do in thinking about what they're going to do in retirement. Uh, retirement may, uh, to many people, be a time to slow down, but it doesn't necessarily mean you ought to come to a full stop. Planning on what you want to do, who you want to uh, spend more time with, thinking about how you can continue to contribute to your community, however you define that committee, that community is really a significant part of planning for how retirement's going to be fun, how it's going to be beneficial to you. Your identity does change when you step out of the working world, but in many circumstances, the best thing to do in retirement is to strive for a new identity, going back to school, doing that travel you wanted to do, contributing through volunteer activities, spending time with your family. These are all things that can make sure that your retirement is not a full stop, but it's a new direction. In terms of uh, the people making decisions about where they will live when they retire, and this is part of, uh, I would call, in what you also call the adventure that happens after retirement, are a lot of people, Sally, deciding that they do want to make a significant move at retirement. And I, I guess that there are places in the United States that they can do so, maybe uh, economically that are a little bit more feasible for them than maybe where they live now, but also out of the country. Can you talk about that trend or that kind of movement with retirees? Moving out of the country is certainly uh, an interesting adventure. It is something that I have some cautions about. At least make sure that you spend some time in the new possible location, particularly if it's a dramatic change of environment. Go in the worst season <laughs> to make sure that um, the other season the non-touristy season is to your your liking. I encourage people to spend an extended amount of time, let's say, renting or, or leasing property before actually making that more permanent jump of moving, permanently moving and changing your residence. You need to be sure that you have a clear idea of to what, what kind of just the daily living expenses are going to be. Are you going to have sufficient funds to support your lifestyle? If you're considering to buy property, you need to be sure that you check with the embassy of the new country as to any restrictions on foreigners owning property. Mm -hmm. uh, you also, a good idea is to make sure that you have a very good conversation with the um, embassy officials as to what kind of visa you would be able to obtain. Some countries encourage uh, retirees to come. Others are concerned that they you're not going to become a drag on their uh, society and want 
to be sure that you have sufficient ongoing resources to be able to maintain yourself and not become a burden on the new society. It's also important to check out whether the health care that you will need is going to be available and how much it's going to cost. Sometimes the health care in another country is equivalent or and maybe even cheaper than uh, what it is in the United States. But um, everyone has to keep in mind who are of a retirement age that Medicare is not going to cover you if you move out of the United States. Those are really good things to remember. Sally, is there a place in the United States right now that is kind of hot for retirement? Is there a place that's become very popular? I know Florida, where we live, obviously seems like a great option because it's, I don't know, there's eight months of winter where we live, so people get a little bit sick of it. We live in northeastern Pennsylvania, and it's cold a lot. Is there another part of the country where people are finding an affordable place to go and uh, communities of, of other individuals who are also retirees? Well, there are lots of, I think people are not so much moving to Florida, perhaps as much as uh, they used to. They're exploring other climbs, other locations. I know that a lot of studies show that people like to move perhaps to a smaller but vibrant community such as a college town hmm. because college towns have lots of arts and entertainment and the option to take classes. So I would say that probably one of the draws for retirees is into college communities, that mix of generations, the vibrance of the young kids, plus the multiple opportunities for culture and education and intergenerational experiences probably is one, is a magnet. I know communities in North Carolina and in Colorado have been uh, attractive draws. There are lots of places on the web to um, that have you know best places to retire that are perhaps not the normal Sarasota, St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. Orlando kind of of draws. Well, I'm, I'm glad to see that there is a little bit of an evolution on that, and I think it sounds like a great idea. Now, you also have a, a chapter in your book uh, about money and, and finances, and um, how important is it that you you think? And I it's it's I guess it's very touchy, but how important is it if you do have some assets that you think beyond your own life? at the point of retirement and protect some of those assets so maybe they don't get uh, turned over to the government at some point instead of to your heirs. And I know a lot of people never want to have this conversation. Studies, particularly through AARP, clearly show that there are two primary goals that people have. One is to make sure that they have enough money for themselves to live the in the lifestyle that they wish. But 
also they really want to have the opportunity to leave some sort of legacy to their their children or to their grandchildren or to particular charities or institutions that have been meaningful in their in their life so at least in my view i want to be it's my money for me to spend Mm -hmm. to make sure that i can live the life in retirement that i wish but i also want to be sure that i have enough money that i can leave at least some lasting legacy to my kids currently the tax uh, laws allow a significant amount of money to escape estate taxes. So only really the very wealthy, those that have over a million dollars, need to be actively concerned about particular saving strategies to avoid having um, the government take a share of what you wish to pass to your kids or your grandkids. That is author Sally Balch-Hermy, who wrote the new book, Get the Most Out of Retirement, Checklist for Happiness, Health, Purpose, and Security. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 